All right, y'all, let's turn to uh, Job chapter 1 and 2. The uh, floodgate opened this week with the Job question box. I think it just needed a little priming at the pump, and then it happened. It just, they started flying in. And uh, my favorite one this week was, quote, I have a degree in mathematics, but I don't want to teach. Any suggestions? Thanks for the job help. Is Evan here? Because he's the one that did it. I will get him in the next service. Yes, I shall. All right, the questions came in, and as they came in, they were continuing to wrestle with the problem of sin, evil, and suffering in the light of or in the context of the character of God, particularly, again, what? His power, his control, his sovereignty, and his goodness and his love. These two wonders of who God is seem to be the touchstone, seem to be the place that strikes at the problem of what we're going to see historically has been called the problem of evil. So we've had questions flood in with respect to sin, evil, suffering, the character of God, in light of the character of God, and in light of meaningful choices that humans make, and in light of a meaningful real friendship with God. So historically, when you mix this all together and put it together and mix it up, you get what's been called the problem of evil. And uh, last week, we dipped our big toe into those cold, dark waters of the problem of evil. Well, this week, we jump all the way in. Uh, Last week, we saw that uh, suffering has a face. Job got a face for us. We saw a real person with a real name in a real place uh, with real loved ones. Uh, We saw, what's the point of it all? I mean, what's the point of God's interactions with Job and his suffering. And then you got to think of, remember, this was written to an original audience. So what's the point of the original audience hearing this? And what's God's message for them and their suffering? And then, you know, down through the ages, this has been read over and over again, all the way to us. What's the point? What's God's message for us in suffering? Now, the answers were legion. And you might recall that we focused on some popular ones, and it's, it bears giving us a little framework as we start really getting into the deeper waters here. Everyone's trying to answer this question. Uh, Christianity isn't the only one that has a problem with evil. Everyone has a problem with evil, and everyone's trying to attempt to answer it. So we have some major popular ones like raw Uh, naturalism, or what's called evolutionary uh, naturalism. Uh, And evil and suffering in this model, or in this view, is a product, is the waste, it's the energy, it's the streams coming out of a natural process, natural selection, the chance collision of atomic and subatomic particles. When that happens, the effect is evil and what we would call evil and suffering. Uh, so what's happened in this model is evil and suffering is relativized. There is no transcendent cosmic good or bad or evil. It's just a, a natural selection or process that takes place. So Job shouldn't be taking this all personally. It shouldn't be personal to him at all. It's the normal stuff of life, Job. Get over it. Now, Uh, Eastern religious thought sees evil and suffering as being immaturity or uh, flaws or defects in a higher cosmic oneness. 
And so the goal is to remove these defects or get mature. It's to scale up the cycle of life. And the way you scale up the cycle of life into this oneness, whether it's a cosmic idea or state of being or force, Star Wars, right? That reality, the way you do that is to progressively gain self-awareness and self-improvement, okay? Now, theistic thought, which tends to be more towards the Western part of the, the world, also deals with its answers. And it does it this way. It says that evil and suffering exist because God is not powerful. Okay, it goes like this. God is loving and God is good and evil exists. All right? So if evil exists and God is loving and good, he cannot, he cannot be powerful. He cannot be all controlling. He can't do anything about it because if he could do something about it, he would. Okay? Now, uh, there are many spectrums here. Um, There are many thoughts like God chooses to limit himself, his knowledge, his power. That goes on. There's something called process theology. That's still going on. Uh, But that's one way to tackle it. The other way to tackle it is evil and suffering exists because God is not good. He's not loving. So we got God is powerful. Evil exists. Therefore, God can't be loving or good because if he's loving or good, how can he stand there? If he could do something about it, how can he let it continue to devour us? Right? Okay. Now, how does Job respond to all of this? This is what we wrapped up with last week. How does Job 1 through 2 respond to all of this? Here's the answer. Job says uh, evil and suffering exist in the world where God is both all-powerful and all-good. Now, there's lots of mystery in how those parts all work together, as we've seen. But there is no mystery in Job chapter 1 through 2 of whether God is both powerful and loving. That's no mystery. So the point so far in the problem of evil for Job is to trust him because he's trustworthy. He's all-powerful and he's all-good or he's loving. Now today, we jump in. We get into the nitty-gritty. We're going to roll our sleeves up a little bit. If we were to if we were to use uh, the, the image of Shark Week continuing here, we're getting in with the sharks. We're, we're sticking our whole body into these waters. We're zooming in on the problem of evil. The plan is to set some ground rules, and that's where we're going to find the point. And then we're going to take this point, and we're going to use it like a catechism question, to use three questions that this will answer. So the ground rule or the point is going to be used to answer three questions that stalk continuously this problem of evil, particularly for Christianity. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. If you would stand, we will read the scriptures. We're going to look at Job 1, 6 through 12, and then 2, 1 through 6. So we are in the heavenly court in both of these cases. So it's 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came among them. The Lord said to the Satan, From where have you come? The Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to the Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, turns away from evil? Then the Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to the Satan, behold, pay attention. All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now go over to the second uh, heavenly courtroom scene, 2, 1 through 6. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to the Satan, from where have you come? The Satan answered and said, from going to and fro all the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then the Satan answered the Lord and said, listen, skin for skin, all that the man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand, touch his bone and his flesh. He'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to the Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. This is the word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. Oh, Lord, we do go in some dark, murky, cold waters this morning, and I ask that you would give great clarity, and not just clarity, Lord, would you, would you comfort, would you give courage, would you give confidence, not in our swimming ability and not in our ability to work it out in our mind, but in the wonder of you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's the ground rules. So if we're going to keep the sharp week theme going here, there's a diver's cage in Job 1 through 2. If you get out of the diver's cage, you become dinner. That's going to be the ground rule. All right? So we've got to stay in this diver's cage. So what's the diver's cage? The diver's cage is the only ground rule of chapter 1 and 2, and that's the heavenly court. The book of Job has given us two lenses to see reality, two lenses to look through to actually interpret the data that's before us. It gives us an earthly lens and it gives us a heavenly lens. We have got to look through the heavenly lens or we're going to misinterpret what's happening with the problem of evil and all the questions that stalk the problem of evil. Uh, my first week as a campus missionary in the former Soviet Union, I had met these two guys, one in particular uh, we hit it off really, really quick. He spoke pretty good English. His name was Roman, and he was starting to introduce me to a bunch of college students in Russia, and we were becoming friends. And this first week, he got one of them together, and we were going out for dinner. And while we were going out for dinner, we were walking to this restaurant, and these two guys, these two new friends, started arguing. I mean, their voices just started getting louder and louder, and, and their hands were gyrating everywhere. I mean, going everywhere, passion and animation all over the place. Uh, personal space was completely gone. You know, that invisible one-foot barrier around us that shouldn't be broken until we get married. They broke it. They were all over the place. So they were passionately exchanging, loud. And instinctively, I started thinking, sizing them both up, saying, all right, who's going to throw the first punch? And then if it goes to the ground, which one's going to be more skilled in Russian Sambo? Because every male 
student has to serve two years in the Russian military where they're all trained in Russian sambo. It's a form of mixed martial arts and wrestling, so on and so forth. So I'm thinking, which one's it going to be? So finally, I grabbed Roman and I said, hey, man, what's going on? Why are you guys so mad at each other? <laughs> and he looked at me with this blank, just completely confused look on his face. And he said, Jeff, all we're doing is discussing where we're taking you to dinner. Now, through the American lens, they're fighting. Through the Russian lens, this is a normal, everyday personal interaction and discussion and conversation. Russians are passionate people, relationally intense people. But it all depended on which lens we were looking through. As you and I approach the problem of evil and the specific questions that we've got to wrestle with the problem of evil, if we look through the earthly lens, we're going to see people fighting. And we're going to get it wrong every time about who God is, who Job is, who we are, sin, evil, suffering, the dynamics, how it works. We'll get it wrong every time. But if we look through the heavenly lens, we'll start seeing reality rightly. For our good. Okay? Now, um, what would happen if we did not look, have this heavenly court lens? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, let's, let's, let's revisit one and two without what we just read. So what do we have? Well, we've got one, one through five, don't we? We got the narrator's prologue. So we have some good data. We have this guy telling us about Job's piety. And then Job's prosperity. And then his piety in action. And that's all we get for chapter 1. Right? And then in chapter 2, or excuse me, after chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, we get 13 through 22. Right? And then 2, 7 through 10. And then all we get is we get five hammers of doom. And we see these five hammers of doom. We don't know what's going on. They just come out just like they did to Job out of the blue, completely taken by surprise, just like an animal that was stalking him, hunting him, at the right opportunity it hits, right? Now, if we're looking at these five, these five hammers of doom, what's interesting about them, what we would have about them is that two of them are widely recognized in the ancient Near East, widely recognized in that day as acts of God on wickedness and evil. Fire. In fact, it says that in the text. Fire from God came down. And destructive winds. Then the other thing we have, the, one of the dooms, hammers of doom, is a skin disease, which is also widely recognized in the ancient Near East, and in particular, Jewish culture and religion that comes on later in the day, as to be a mark of being stained, unclean, blemished. The exact opposite of what the narrator just said about Job. Blameless, upright. And then all we have is we just see uh, raw terror, destruction, and pain of one man. That's all we got. 
Now, how would we interpret what's going on? What would we see? What would we not see? What would be our conclusion? Well, we are given the answer. Do you know where we're given the answer? Three friends come along later in the story and they don't have the heavenly view. And they represent anyone and everyone who doesn't have the heavenly view. And so what do they do? What are they like? They're lousy friends. What do they see? Here's what they see. Piety produces prosperity. Here's what they see. A good performance means God blesses you. If you lack it, that's what's happening to you, Job. You lack it. You've got something going on with you. And you're getting your due reward. So in other words, we would have and we would be blind. We would be unloving. We'd be very moralistic and self-righteous. And our moralistic views and their manner. Wait till we get to their manner. Oh, my word. You'll want to take one of them out and sambo them. They're unbelievable. Their, their manner and their matter hurt Job. All right. So the heavenly court lens, the heavenly lens is the interpretive key for Job 1 and 2 and for the rest of the book. That's the point. The point of looking at the specificities, the specific occasions of suffering and evil is we have to look through the heavenly lens we can't get out of the diver's cage. Okay? So we've got to look through the heavenly lens. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three questions that stop the problem of evil. But we're going to look at the three questions not through the earthly lens. We're going to look at the three questions through the heavenly lens. And hopefully we'll see a right. We'll interpret the data correctly. Okay? So here we go. Let's look at the first question. Here's the first question. If God is all-powerful, meaning he's all-knowing, he's all-controlling, he rules over everything, he's king over everything, if this is true, then isn't God ultimately responsible for sin, evil, and suffering? Now, you thought I was going to take an easy one, didn't you? No, I shy away from the easy ones. Looking through the heavenly lens, the answer is yes. but not in the way we might think. Look at Job 2, verse 3, but the last part of it, which we'll call B. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited. Incited means to instigate, initiate, start, originate in a bad sense. You incited, you originated, you instigated, you started in a bad sense. You started it all. Me against him to destroy him without reason. So God blames the Satan for the evil. So through the heavenly lens, all responsibility for the evil falls at the feet of the Satan. 
you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Now, nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible is God ever the source of the author of sin and evil. But everywhere in the Bible, God is the judge of it. And that's what's happening in this verse 3. God is calling the Satan to account and putting all responsibility and all blame for the origin and source of sin and evil on him. So blame and responsibility are always placed on a moral agent, whether it's a human agent or a demonic agent. The blame and the responsibility is always placed there. Uh, Eternal justice exists against all sin and evil because all sin and evil ultimately is an attack on God and his creation or his good. What all evil and sin tries to do is dethrone or destabilize or replace God and his creation with something else. And so when we get to God's justice and we get to his eternal justice, what we end up seeing is that God's holiness and goodness and love and purity and beauty and bounty in action is him exercising justice against sin and evil. So God does something about it. He utterly removes it and judges it and gets rid of all of it. So eternal justice is God's holiness in action. All right, so what we have here is that when we look through the heavenly lens, this is what we can say. God wills that sin and evil and wickedness be. He controls it. He ordains it. He's sovereign over it. He rules it. He's king over it. Pick your word. I mean, decree it, permit it, allow it. Everyone who is a theologian has a word there. They all have them, and you'll read them. God wills that sin and evil be without sinning. Without being the originator and the author and the source of it. This is why Job says in 2.10, shall we receive good from the Lord and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin. So here we go. Yes. By the time sin and evil eventually get to your front door, it's by the hand of God but not because he's the insider, the instigator, the author and the source of it, but because he's the king over it. Okay? Now, here's here's the point. This is where we find our comfort and our confidence and our courage rather than despair. God ruling over all sin, evil, and suffering is the only rock we can stand on amidst it. Everything else is getting out into the sharks and swimming with the sharks. So what happens is if we don't look through this heavenly lens at this Juncture of the problem of evil, we possibly will blame God for sin and evil. We possibly will lose his power 
and thus our ability to hold on to him who rules over all. And thus what ends up happening is we are left all alone swimming with the sharks. Okay? Second question. If God is all-powerful and loving, then why does he allow it? Why does he allow evil, sin, and suffering? I mean, why does God continually allow the specific experiences of pain that you and I experience in our friends and our loved ones and that we see daily on the news? Why? When we look through the heavenly lens of Job 1 and 2, we're not told all the reasons why. This might be a little tough. Job never knew why he suffered. Specifically. Job never got a specific answer to his individual experience of pain. He never got it. Beyond what? We, we are fallen people and we live in a fallen world. I mean, that's the general answer, right? That's going to be the ultimate answer. We can always go back to, how did all this stuff get here? And the answer is in Romans 5, and the answer is throughout Romans, and the answer is in Genesis, that it's an invader, it's an intruder, because someone let it in. And we go all the way back to Adam, we go all the way back to the fall, and we go all the way back to the corruption, we go all the way back to the world being turned upside down and the way it's not supposed to be. And we, in a general sense, can say, that's the reason. But when we get down to specific each individual experiences of evil, there's not a direct line from that to a specific reason. Sometimes there is, and sometimes they're not. Because when we look at when we look at Job, he didn't get it. But we, it's interesting, we get more knowledge than he does, doesn't he? We do get a couple threads that extend from his specific suffering to a specific reason. We get two. There's probably more, but that's all that God allow us to see in this heavenly lens. When we look through it, we get two. What do we get? Well, we get, we get the Satan accusing Job of trusting in God just for his gifts, not for the giver at all. We got, we got Satan accusing Job of trusting in gifts, not the giver. Ultimately, what we get is one theologian is so good to point out, Job is the ultimate test case of every son of God. What Satan is challenging and accusing and what he does down through the centuries and what he does till, till Jesus kicks him out when he resurrects, when he rises from the dead, and now what he does on earth and to your ear and your heart and every Christian and every human being on the face of the earth is he communicates and he challenges your right, our right, as sinful humans to stand before the throne of God. So we got that reason here. We also get a reason from Job 1 and 2 is that the Satan hates God and hates Job and hates the sons of God. But that's all we got. So sometimes there's specific identifiable reasons that are attached to our individual experiences of pain. But sometimes there are not. We don't know. So the Bible and Christianity does not provide all the answers to why we suffer specifically. But it does provide 
unbelievable resources for facing pain with courage and comfort and confidence rather than despair. Okay, um, last question. We're going to wrap it up here. Uh, this is more personal. If we can't always know the specific reason, so what have we looked at? We can't always know the specific reason to why we suffer. Uh, is our suffering then in vain? If we can't make a connection between our experience of suffering and why it's happening, we can't do that. Let's say we can't do it for a specific place right now in your life or with your friends or with so many in the church right now. If we can't do that, does that mean suffering's in vain? Does that mean your suffering is purposeless, meaningless, you know, wrapped up in some cosmic transcendent fog that you can't get your mind and heart around, your heart can never get any security in? Is that what it means? The first thing we should say at this point is most of the time it feels that way. It certainly feels that way if we're honest. One writer points out, have you ever noticed how desperate the families are of lost ones? The families of lost ones are to say that their loved one's death was not in vain. They work to reform laws or chart, change social conditions that led to the death. They need to believe that the death of their loved one has led to new life, that the injustice has led to greater justice. Is our suffering pain in vain? The heavenly lens says no. God's use, we looked at this, I think, last week. In the heavenly courtroom, God refers to Job as my servant Job six times. He's never called my servant Job outside of that courtroom and in the context of anything other than suffering. So what God does with a servant of the Lord is he connects a servant of the Lord with suffering. And so what God does is he is now cosmically connected Suffering with a call from God. Suffering has God's fingerprints all over it. It's loaded with God purpose and God meaning and God wonder. It is so intimately connected with God, and as we will see in a minute why, that God says it's a calling to suffer. Now, one of my favorite passages in all of Job is in chapter 23, and it goes like this. He knows what he's doing with me, and when he has tested me, I shall come forth as pure gold. Even though Job didn't know what was going on, God did. And it was enough. And it is enough. It's enough to comfort. It's enough to strengthen. It's enough to give courage. Notice that the testing Job was talking about produces life change. That's not vain. 
The testing in this context and coming forth as gold means that as a result, and we get to the end of the book, we're going to see Job says, listen, I've heard about you a lot. In other words, I've read all the systematic theologies. I got a lot of knowledge about you. And he says, after now, I see you. I really know you. God has connected a call to suffering in such a way that he has sanctified suffering in such a way that he makes himself, his glory, his grace, his love, his mercy more real to us through it. And that's not in vain. That's life itself. I'm going to have to end here. The reason why suffering is sanctified is because there was an ultimate suffering servant who sanctified it forever. If suffering, evil, and sin were a killer bee, Jesus took the sting. And the stinger was implanted and detached and broken off in him so it cannot ultimately sting again. Sure, it'll buzz you, it'll harass you, it'll dive bomb you, but that bee is dying. And one day, it's gone. So the problem of evil, the only way you can tackle the problem of evil is by looking through the heavenly lens. Amen.